If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. So this is Polly Shore. I'm here in, is it Bushwick? It's Bushwick. Bushwick, and we're here at Roberto's. And Roberta's, and we're on Heritage Radio. We're talking about food. We're talking about, um, you know, big glasses, and we're talking about all the man buns. And you're listening to The Morning After. Episode 187 of The Morning After. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. I am coming to you live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm here in the studio, and my guest today is Andy Ricker. He's the chef and owner of the of the Pock Pock Empire that is in Portland and L.A. and New York. Hello, Andy. Hi there. Greetings from Brooklyn, Portland. I'm actually <laughs> in Brooklyn, the, the Brooklyn neighborhood of Portland right now. Is there really much of a difference between Brooklyn and Portland anyway? I mean, we're basically the Portland of the West and you're the Brooklyn of the, or the other way around. We're the Portland of the East. You're the Brooklyn of the West. Is that right? Yeah, that's more or less correct. Yeah. Either way, we're, we're basically all in the same time space, I think, according to Polly Shore. I think that's what he would say. The, Exactly. Except, except you're you're sitting at Roberta's, and I'm sitting across the street from the Bear Paw Inn. Uh, a little bit of a different, uh, a little different reality there. How many man buns can you currently see right now? I, there are zero man buns. Zero. Okay, we are not zero. in the same place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> David, am I allowed to use the Poly Shore clip next season, or do I have to find someone new? Um. <laughs> We'll talk off the air. Okay, I'm just I'm currently I'm currently <laughs> auditioning a new Polly Shore for next season. We start in January. I just want to put that out there. A new Polly Shore? <laughs> Is that like a, a euphemism? N- n- no. <laughs> uh, I don't arrival Polly Shore. I guess oh, I'll say. Oh, I see. All right, all right. I digress. Um, Andy, we have some food news to share. If you wouldn't mind indulging me momentarily, eh? I got to bring the news to the people. First off, uh, in London, there was a naked pop-up restaurant. And that is apparently reopening Ooh-er. for good. Is Ooh. that a pun? Naked pop-up? Uh, Naked, yeah, pop-up, huh? it, No, but it should be. <laughs> but it's actually real. It was a pop-up restaurant concept where everyone ate naked. And apparently it did so well, it's actually going to become a permanent restaurant. I don't know. London, they're just like, you know, you have this image of people, people over there across the pond being very sort of proper, but... I gotta tell ya, that's that's pretty edgy, man. <laughs> would you would you dine yeah, there, Andy? Upper lip, <laughs> and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, would you go? Yeah. Uh no, no. <laughs> it, now wait a minute. Does it mean that you have to get naked to eat there? Or yes, that's exactly what it. Naked? No, that's what it means. It means you have to be naked in order to eat there. Yeah, I don't really eat naked, typically, <laughs> unless I'm sitting in an ocean somewhere. It sounds very dangerous. But apparently, yeah. 40, literally 45,000 people signed up to eat at the pop-up. Like, that's how many people Good. wanted to do it. And I'm, I'm doubtful they could accommodate everyone, so they have to, like, now open up an, an, a permanent space so these 45,000 people can have their dreams come true, eating in a public space naked, which is definitely Fantastic. my nightmare. All right, uh, moving on. Let's see. Oh, okay. So Auntie, a- Auntie Anne's? Auntie Anne's? Do you know it's that pretzel place? Have you heard of this place? You know the place? Not me. 
Okay, this is like a place that's in every mall in America. They're known for these like very buttery pretzels that smell amazing. And they opened up in Malaysia. And they they have a product that they're calling the they call it the pretzel dog. That's what it's called here in the States. It's like a like a hot dog wrapped in a pretzel casing, which sounds, you know, pretty innocuous. But it's confusing Malaysians because they think it's dog that's wrapped in a pretzel. So, oh, dear. yeah, I know. I'm like, well, I was oh, wondering dear. if you've ever encountered anything like that in your travels abroad, any sort of, I don't know, just like colloquial issues, like miscommunication. Um, oh, yeah, sure. But but I've also encountered like in Thailand, there, there's a uh, pizza chain there that is actually an American pizza chain that I won't name. But they have one of their specials is a hot dog stuffed crust. Yeah, exactly. So pe- do people think and- it's a dog? No, they don't think it's dog. At this point, in, in Thailand, hot dogs are actually, or some, you know, what you know, what they call hot dog, is one is probably the most popular street food there is. Hot dogs it's are the most popular street slime. food in Thailand. <laughs> yes. It's, what? <laughs> so it, it's pink slime in many different shapes and sizes. They either grill it or they um, they deep fry it. But basically, anytime you walk down the street, there's somebody there. Uh, selling what amounts to hot dog. Huh. Weird. Yep. Okay. It's not a hot dog in a bun. It's just right. like a like kind of a sausage on a stick type deal. Oh, yeah. I guess I guess I, I have seen that. Yeah. Um, but it always, like, it just feels so other because you're there. Like, it never occurred to me that it's like, oh, it's a hot dog. Um, yeah. well, anyway, in Malaysia, I guess Auntie Ans is being asked to change the name from pretzel dog to pretzel sausage, like TM. So people are no mm. longer confused. Okay, and then Why don't lastly, they just call it pig, in a, pig in a blanket. Because because so much of the population is Muslim, is the reason oh, why. There you go. Yeah, it's like there's an, an actual reason because it has to be an all be frank. Yeah. There all it right. Is. <laughs> and in Ohio, my home state, uh, a woman just stopped at a Wendy's, like one does, to pick up a snack for her four-year-old child, got some fries. Her kids started complaining that her food was nasty, and she made her daughter spit out the fries, and she found a deep-fried weed, a bunch of deep-fried weed in the palm of her hand, and also what she thought was a blunt wrapper. And uh, she Get was, out of here. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think in some cases you'd be, like, pretty psyched to have a deep-fried weed nugget creep up in your fries, but not if not if it's a four-year-old. So, well, in Oregon, we're, we're, weed is legal, so that may actually become a reality here at some point. Weed nuggets. That was That's a selling point. Yeah, that's like that's something that people would use for marketing purposes, but not in Ohio. Why not? not yet. Yeah. And especially not the blunt wrapper. Like, I think even in Oregon, they'd be like, I'm good. I don't need the, the blunt wrapper to actually be part yeah, of the no, food. Yeah. No, <laughs> nobody needs to eat a blunt wrapper. I mean, no one. <laughs> when I was a kid, we used to we used to challenge each other to eat the roach. So, oh. you know, there is there is a history of eating the, the blunt wrapper, but, but not because uh, it tastes good. <laughs> no, it's on a dare. No, nobody wants that. <laughs> All right. Well, that's funny. Um, All right. Cool. That's our food news for the day. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk with Andy Ricker of Pock Pock.
New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. We're back. You're listening to The Morning After on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. I'm here with Andy Ricker. He is the chef and restaurateur of Pock Pock Restaurants in Portland, New York, and L.A. He is a two-time winner of the James Beard Award. His first cookbook, Pock Pock, Food and Stories from the Streets, Homes, and Roadside Restaurants of Thailand, was published in 2013 by 10-Speed Press. Welcome to The Morning After, Andy Ricker. Thank you very much. <laughs> Welcome again. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So you're you're in Portland, where the original Pock Pock opened, um, and now you have locations in New York and L.A., which is most recent. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. How are they all different, and and how do the cities that they're in like affect the personalities of, of each of the locations? Well, for the most part, they're they're all Pock Pock, so they all share sort of a commonality, and, and often they share the majority of menu items. Um, they are different in that the spaces that they're in are different in the different cities, and then the market that we're in is, is different. So uh, the, the, I guess the easiest way to um, kind of think about the differences are what's available in the different markets uh, so that it affects the menu, right? So in New York, we actually have this great pipeline of produce that comes up from Florida. So some very uh, great Thai, Southeast Asian produce can make it up during the summertime. Um, and in Portland, we're kind of, uh, we're a little bit, we're in between. Like in L.A., there's a great, uh, a great source for products. And in Vancouver, B.C., there's a great source. But we're kind of in the middle. So we're on the truck route. We get the stuff that comes from L.A., uh, and we have to fly some stuff in from Hawaii. So it kind of changes a little bit what we're able to do on the menu. Uh, the other way that they're different is that, uh, as I said, the markets. So uh, in New York, uh, for instance, we tend to sell a lot more of the sort of more esoteric northern Thai dishes than we do in Portland. In Portland, we, we tend to sell a lot more of the more populist-type stuff, like the chicken wings and the roasted chicken and ribs and stuff like that. And in L.A., where we have a very, you know, a, a market that's very used to eating Southeast Asian uh, and Asian food um, for decades now, uh, we tend to sell things like um, steamed fish, which is a hard sell in both New York and Portland. We sell the heck out of it in, in L.A. just because people are kind of used to that stuff. So they all have their own little uh, personality quirks, uh, but essentially they're, they're all pock pock. Is that because people are a little more health conscious also in L.A.? Um, I don't think so. Like, uh, it, where we are anyway, L.A., you know, like New York has, uh, you know, neighborhoods are, are uh, different from, from one another there, what people eat, where they go, what they do. L.A. is kind of the same deal. So we're on, the, we're on downtown. We're in Chinatown. 
And the average, the demographic down there is different than it is on the west side. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in the west side of L.A., that's where you're likely to run into people who want the egg white omelet and, you know, the fat-free this and, the, mm -hmm. you know, the kale salad. And on the west side, people are, they're, they're not focused on that as much. They're more focused on strong flavors, lots of protein. So it's a different, it's not, you know, it doesn't quite fit that L.A. Um, uh, cliché. Sure. Right. Yeah. The way New Yorkers I think perceive the reason why they, they order more steamed fish is because the, the the demographic is different. It's a lot of young folks, a lot of Asian folks who come in to eat. Um, they've been, you know, like I said, L.A. has a decades-long history of, um, you know, uh, Southeast Asian and, and Chinese food being and Korean food being very much part of the culture. And so people are just used to eating steamed fish. Yeah. How were you so first received in L.A. since there is such a strong history of, of Thai food in that area? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I can't say it was all positive. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, to a certain amount of people are just like, how dare you come here? We already have, you know, we've got the best Thai food in the country. We've got, you know, some of the best Thai food in the world. And, you know, they've got an argument. They've had Thai food there for, you know, 40 some odd years. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of skepticism. And uh, to be honest, some, some folks just really didn't want us around. But there's also been a fair amount of people who, uh, who, who are happy that we're there, who've come up to eat in Portland or in New York. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's been a mixed bag, to be honest with you. Yeah. It hasn't all been great. I read the Jonathan Gold review, and, it's, and it, he did admit to going in kind of skeptical, but, it's, but it did sound like even after the first bite, he was won over. So that must have been really helpful to have that review come out. It was. I mean, it's, it's been very interesting. I think that, uh, you know, we've generally received really good reviews from, from the, the critics. Um, but they, 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 too, are, you know, they're, they're Angelinos, and they have a very specific connection with their city. And, um, you know, there's, as I think Jonathan Gold said, it's, you know, it is a white guy doing Thai food. There's a lot to unpack there. So, you know, um, at the end of the review, you read it, and it's like, well, that was a, that was a positive review. But I, I don't think that either he or the other folks who reviewed were able to just look at it and view it outside of the context of L.A. And that that's that's the nature of the game. Yeah, you're always certainly because the context yeah. of of the market you're in. Sure, I mean, especially because he's such a champion of of like true ethnic yeah. cuisine that exists. But I, we will. I do want to exactly. unpack that like in a little bit because um, there's a lot to talk about there. But just in terms of like your history and like you getting started with Thai food, um, you know, I read about how you kind of went to Thailand with no intention of ever opening a restaurant necessarily. What was what was the most surprising and compelling thing that you discovered about the food that clearly changed your life trajectory? Um, well, I mean, we're we're talking like nineteen eighty ancient history yeah. now. Yeah. So you know, I went there for the first time in the mid eighties. And that, that trip wasn't really about food, but, you know, I did experience the food there. And what I noticed was right away uh, was that even though I was ordering at bungalows, eating at bungalows and tourist places because in backpacker places, is that even dishes that I recognized from home, like green curry and whatnot, just didn't taste the same as I'd remembered it in the States. So that was the first thing I noticed. And then going back again to the early 90s, uh, 1992 to be exact, I had uh, an experience eating a, uh, you know, specific northern Thai dish that was seasonal, local, and regional. And it, you know, it just triggered the realization that Thai food, like any great uh, cuisine, is seasonal, uh, it's local, it's regional. 
and it's there's different there's that applies to the entire country so just knowing that that there was this cuisine that you see you could only see there because of of the time and place uh that you, that you won't see outside of the country that that basically is what hooked me mm-hmm. and made me look deeper why has northern thai cuisine as opposed to central or southern do you think resonated with you more or like manifested more in your cooking well you know i, I think that uh the main reason was just time and place I, that's where i happen to be uh if i'd have had a similar experience in the south of thailand we you know pok pok maybe may have been a southern thai restaurant um but it so happens that you know Chiang Mai and and the area around there is the place in Thailand that I, I initially went to that I ended up spending the most time in it and you know where I was introduced to this stuff um, and you know I, I got taught how to make lab by my my friend's uh, you know father-in-law and an elderly northern Thai guy and that was I was so fascinated by that dish and it's so delicious and so interesting but it just kind of sucked me in really hard. So I you know I I don't know. I I I do think that the all the regions have really interesting fantastic dishes but for whatever reason it's the northern Thai that's kind of stuck with me the most. Mm-hmm. Um I think at this point, you know, anyone who's interested in food sees you as like this incredible resource and authority. Um, not only on like turning people on in the West about like what Thai food actually tastes like in Thailand, but also like people who, you know, want to go to Thailand and travel and like now they can turn to you or like your Instagram or, you know, other articles and, and actually go to these specific places. Do you, does that ever concern you? Like, do you ever feel like you need, you want to protect these places, even though at the same time you've, you've become like a, a, an authority or like a resource and, and telling people where to go? I mean, is it ever... Do you ever feel conflicted about it? Mm, I, the only conflict that I would feel about that is that, um, you know, it it would be a selfish one in that I don't, you know, it's possible that if too many foreigners go there that, that the food will be altered. Yeah. But, look, I mean, people who are selling food for a living in Thailand, they're, they're selling it for a living. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like... If I'm able to bring them more business, that is literally one of the only real ways that I have of kind of giving back to this culture and to to the people who've taught me stuff. You know, you can you can you can give somebody you know a couple thousand baht for a recipe, or you can put them on your Instagram account, and as long as they're open, a ton of people will come through there uh, and and buy food from them. So and then tell their friends. So I you know I think that. Um, it'd be, it wouldn't be a good thing if I was just to keep quiet about the places that I thought were really good there. Right. Um, also, I, I want to encourage those people to keep on doing what they're doing and also to kind of um, help the by sending people to places like Hun uh, Tong way out in the middle of nowhere in Maon, and having this fantastic food, it, it kind of shows those folks that foreigners can eat local food and are happy to eat the local food, and uh, it changes attitudes about what Thai people are willing to serve to, to foreigners in yeah. some small way, I think, some yeah. very small way. Yeah. I was in Thailand uh, a couple of months ago. I only went to Bangkok, but I was so surprised to see how many Western um, fast food chains 
had infiltrated, like since the time I had gone, which is about 10 years before, like Kentucky Fried Chickens. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it's like it, it is this weird duality where it's like it's it's so positive to have this very you know, all this fluidity with tourism now and like the age of Airbnb and like Uber and anyone can go to Asia. But I don't know. There's also this thing about globalization that's like so cringy. And so I guess that's sort of what I was trying to tap into. Like on on one end, like it's fantastic if it's only improving local people's business. But at the other time, at the other, you know, the other coin flip of the coin is like, you want to preserve the integrity of like what Thai culture is. And I just, I worry (laughs) about too many people coming over there. Look, I I think that, that, um, you know, the, the the thing is that Thailand is not a third world country Mm -hmm. at this point. It's, it's, you know, it's moving out of the category of developing country. Even they've got hello kitty and super malls there, you know, giant it's it's not it's not a backward it's not a backwoods place being ruined it is full participation in the modern world and there's a growing middle class and um you know they're just as aware of what's going on in the country they're just as obsessed with fast food stuff as we are and um it's not entirely on western travelers coming through uh if you go to mcdonald's there yeah you'll see western travelers if you're in an area where uh, there's a lot of Western travelers, but you know, the predominant market there are Thai people, young Thai kids. They love fast food. Uh, so, and there's another thing to, to keep in mind too: is that Thailand has a very has a, has a long history of franchises and fast food. If you go down the street and you see a noodle stand and uh, and you stop by, the chances are that this is not a mom and pop shop that's been you know that has their own original recipe that's been doing it for 50 years. Usually those people are in a shop front somewhere. The food carts, in, in like I would say a, a huge portion of them are actually franchises. But you wouldn't know unless you could read Thai and you understood, <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's really surprising how many like noodle carts in Thailand are actually franchises, like the way a McDonald's is a franchise. Oh, yeah, that's funny. That would have never occurred to me. And, and owned by, by, you know... Uh, CP, which is this massive food conglomerate there that's comparable to other giant food conglomerates in the United States. Uh, so, you know, there's there's uh, there's our perception in the West. We would like to go to Thailand and and think that we're in this sort of magical kingdom of of uh, tradition and you know uh, all this stuff. But look, it's it's a rapidly changing. It always has been a, a rapidly changing place where. Um, Traditions come and you know uh, modify themselves, change, um, and uh, you know some of it's preserved, some of it isn't. Um, so you know it's a complicated situation there. It's not it's not as simple as uh, you know there's traditional food that, and then there's this fast food coming in and taking over. It's much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm, of course. Um, all right. So switching gears a little bit. Back to uh, what's going on with you in L.A. I, I read about how you tried to implement a 5% service charge um, when the restaurants first opened in L.A. to kind of balance or to supplement the wages of the back of the house so that things are a little bit more equitable between the cooks and the servers, but it didn't work. Have things stabilized? Are there any plans to bring the service charge back? No. Uh, at the moment, um, everybody in the industry who you talk to is this is the number one thing we're all thinking about and trying to figure out what to do. Uh, this, this is a conversation that could go for hours, 
but essentially, you know, the tipping the tipping model is broken. It, it it's not going to last forever. We're going to have to do something. Um, and all there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. You could institute a service charge. You could go to only a service charge where there's a flat, uh, you know, service charge in, in certain areas. You can't do that by law. Another possible is possibility is putting a kitchen tip line on the guest check so people can can go ahead and tip the, the kitchen directly if they want. But the problem is that, uh, or, or you could just raise prices until it works. <laughs> but the problem is that there's the, the dining public, and they don't they don't like service charges. They don't like um, a lot of places unless it's a very high end place or a McDonald's. They don't like the no tipping model. People love tipping. Uh, customers love tipping. Owners love tipping because it subsidizes their their business to the tune of close to 20% of all revenue. Uh, and the people who receive tips love it because they get a ton of money uh, for for doing, you know, a relatively small amount of work uh, on a daily basis, hours wise. So it's it's a really tough nut to crack, but it's something that we're all going to have to do. Because when the minimum wage hits $15 an hour, and in New York they eliminate the tip credit, which will most likely happen at some point, mm-hmm. um, we're in a situation where the front of the house is getting $15 an hour, plus they're getting 20% tips on a check that in New York City, as you know, can run, you know, right now runs close to $100 per person, uh, you know, and, and when the restaurant raises prices high enough to cover what wages will have to be in the back of the house to make things more equitable. You know, you can see where this goes. Of course, yeah. It's, um, it's a very difficult thing to figure out. It's a really so, difficult thing. And, yeah. and you know, the the result is that it's really, really hard to get cooks in the door and keep them there. And that's a that's the cook correct. shortage problem is is everywhere. It's not just in L.A. It's it's in New York. It's everywhere. What are, it's, how, it's global. It's global, yeah. You, it's not just in America. <clears throat> yeah, how are you dealing with this? What are you doing to attract talented cooks? Um, you know, the best thing we can do is just pay, uh, you know, market rate or above, and provide a good, structured work environment where uh, you know people want to work. I, I mean, I guess that's, of course, we're big enough that we that we um, you know we offer health care. Um, there's other things that have come down the pike that have made it easier, like sick leave and stuff like that. But honestly, there's, it's a very, very hard nut to crack. If you are a young person who's looking for a job and you know that your entry wage into a kitchen is, is not, it's, it's going to be 13, 14 bucks an hour. Um, or you could go and be a bus, a bus boy or, uh, you know, support staff entry level and you're going to be making two that, double that, you know? It's, it's really hard to, to justify going and working in a hot, sweaty, dirty kitchen, uh, you know, you have to really be dedicated to it. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, honestly. I, it, yeah. the, as I said before, I think the tipping system is broken. We've got to find a way to, to bring the wages up in the back of the house. And, you know, the, the average person says, well, why don't, you, why don't you just pay them more? Why don't you just pay them more? But the problem is that restaurants run on a very slim profit margin, you know, Seven to ten percent is good. A lot of places run on five percent, three percent profit margin, and you know that's that's not a, a 
very big margin to run a successful business on. Yeah. So, you know, simply just paying more isn't the answer. Well, we, we have to pay more, but we also have to charge more. And unfortunately, the way that food works in America, I don't, there's statistics saying that we spend less on food percentage-wise than almost any other major Western market. Um, so we don't value food the same way a lot of the rest of the world, of the world does, and we'll have to start doing that too. Well, I'm sure that it's even more difficult for you because you run Thai restaurants. And I know, you know, the, a lot of the, the perception, at least in the Western world, is that ethnic food is cheap food. And, you know, yeah. you've done a lot to help kind of dispel that, those stereotypes because of the, the quality of food that you use. Is, is it getting better? I mean, are, are people kind of letting go of this notion that ethnic food means cheap food now that we have so many different chefs out there cooking kind of elevated ethnic cuisine? Yeah, I, I mean, I think to a certain extent progress is made all the time. And, um, you know, I, it's, but it's going to be a struggle for a long time. To, it, it's the, the people who are the type of people who might listen to this show are already aware of this stuff. And right. the folks who, you know, read Eater or Grub Street or they're already mostly aware of this. Uh, it's the general public that, that just doesn't, you know, that they don't really have any resources to kind of point out why, you know, you should pay $4 for a taco if the person is using good quality meat and they're paying their wages and their taxes and all that kind of stuff. You know, how, how do you educate people about that? That's a really difficult thing to do. So it's going to be a problem uh, for a long time. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what to do to, to, uh, to get people to, to come around to it, other than just keep on putting your head down and doing what you think is right, as long as you can do it, as long as it makes sense. Mm-hmm. How have you seen American palates change, or maybe you haven't, um, since you first opened Pak Pak in 2005? Right. So, you know, we're coming up on 11 years mm-hmm. of being open. And I think the, the, the most obvious thing is the demographics of, of America, especially in the markets that we operate in, have changed. So it's, it's, it's become a lot more ethnically diverse. Uh, the people who are coming to the restaurants are much more aware. They're, you know, maybe their cultural background is in Southeast Asia or East Asia or um, middle, you know, Central America. Um, their kids, they they were kids that maybe grew up with other kids from other cultures, and so they're they're just much more aware. It's it's um, it, so I think that's the biggest change. Also, the other thing is the rise of food entertainment over the last ten years. Like when I when I popped open the doors, you know, Food Network was just starting out. I think probably there wasn't you know food entertainment wasn't anything like it is now. And we're, we've got. A population that's been raised on uh, you know, Food Network, uh, Travel Channel, all that kind of stuff. It's part of our national psyche at this point. So people have seen things, and they're a lot more adventurous these days. I would say that's the that's the positive uh, effect of of food entertainment. But that's a big positive. I mean, especially when you know, like to the point that we were just talking about, like trying to convince people that just because your food is Thai food doesn't mean it's not of a certain quality and not of a certain price point. Right, right. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it, there's, there's a lot of things to be said negatively about food entertainment, about, you know, making, you know, especially people are looking at getting into the food industry. It skews their 
kind of perception of what it means to be a cook or a server. Um, and it skews the perception of what the folks come to eat can expect. But it also has opened the doors to, you know, when Andrew Zimmern goes and eats in Koreatown uh, and, and writes about it and says how amazing it is, um, you know, he gets people fired up to go out and try to eat live octopus. And that's kind of amazing. <laughs> it is, yeah. So you have a cookbook, uh, which is wonderful. And I've heard that you have two more Thanks. on the way. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, it, it's, it's real Thai food. And so what do, you, what do you say to someone who, wants, who has your book, maybe, but still feels really intimidated about how, how to cook these recipes, you know, asking for a friend? <laughs> um, well, uh, I would say start with something simple. I mean, a lot of the food on the surface, when you crack that book and you look at the recipe, you're like, wow, this is really intense. Excuse me. Um, but once you sort of build up the pantry and a couple of simple tools um, and kind of dig into it, you'll see that it's actually, uh, once you gather all the mise en place and prepare everything, the actual assembly of the food is really quick and easy. So I would say start with something simple. Learn how to cook rice. That's the first thing in the book is learn how to cook rice correctly because uh, that's the basis of the cuisine. The next thing I would say was, would, would be to try something simple, and there's one recipe I'll point people towards, and that's the fried egg salad, yum kai dao. Um, it's, it's something that's damn easy to uh, execute. You only need a few things uh, that it will be outside of your typical pantry. Most of it you can buy at like a, you know, Whole Foods or something like that or, or Safeway at this point. You can, get, you can get fish sauce at Safeway these days. So, um, you know, fish sauce, palm sugar, and Thai chilies. You know, those are the only things in there that are really kind of outside of what we normally uh, would, would be, have access to. Uh, so I'd say start with that. Now, the good thing about learning how to do yam kai dao is that that same basic recipe can be applied to a bunch of different stuff. You can you could do grilled pork in that instead, or squid, or and you know it's just a change, a slight change of ratios. So you learn a whole category that way. Where do you shop in New York when other than you know the Whole Foods which you mentioned? Well, I'm I'm lucky enough to live in uh, in. Sunset Park in Brooklyn. I've lived there for the last few years, and um, of course we have uh, Fei Long, which is a great uh, supermarket there. You can get a lot of stuff. There's and there's a bunch of other supermarkets around there. You can get the is it the R train that goes all the way? Yeah. To, yeah, I think so. You can go to the R train to Eighth um, Avenue and get. And Fei Long's just you know very close to there. That's a great place. If you're in Manhattan, you can go to, in Chinatown, there is the Bangkok, what is it called? Bangkok City Market, I think it's called. Okay. Uh, right, in the, right in the middle of Chinatown. Hmm. Um, really small shop. They, they've got a, all the basic pantry items that you need are there. Plus, they get some specialty produce and herbs and that sort of thing from the same guy who supplies us from his farms in uh, Florida. I have to ask because when I was in Thailand, I tried to bring back Thai whiskey, but it got taken away from me at the airport, and I wasn't allowed to travel with it. Something about like connecting through Taiwan, like you can't bring whiskey through Taiwan. If, I don't know, um, but I haven't been able to find it. Is that does that exist here in New York? Which one, Mekong? Yeah, I guess, or like, real. I mean, any of it. Yeah, 
Yeah, you can get Mekong in America. You can just buy it from a from a typical distributor or liquor store. They might not carry. You might have to request it. But yeah, yeah we, Mekong is is available in the United States. In uh, we get it in New York. We get it in Portland. We get it in L.A. So it's it's totally available. Cool. And you have a book coming out on Thai drinking culture. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And you have one more. And then there'll be a noodle book after that a year later. Okay, cool. So when can we look out for those? I believe we are set for fall 2017 for the drinking food book. And I believe it's fall 2018 for the noodle. But I, I can't, don't hold me okay. to that on the noodle book. Okay. All right. Well, that's very exciting. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Andy, stay with us because we're going to be back with the morning after quiz. Sure. Thanks. And we're back. It's time for the morning after quiz with my guest, Andy Ricker. So it's going to be uh, three questions, Andy. And each question has three multiple choice possibilities. And it's always something, you know, that you really shouldn't have too much, too much knowledge about, but is related to something that you do actually know. So I know because I follow you on Instagram that you are a big fan of cats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have, we have That's true. three cats, <laughs> three Siamese cats. Yeah, three, three cats. Two Siamese and one uh, tabby. Okay, so I know you know a lot about your cats, but I don't know how much you know about the Broadway musical Cats. Nothing. Good. Okay. (laughs) Because this quiz was (laughs) probably not going to be very successful on my end if you knew a lot about the Broadway musical Cats. Oh my God, that's terrifying. Stop that right now. Okay, (laughs) so this is a quiz on the Broadway musical Cats. Like, stop. <laughs> okay, so first question. What is the plot of the Broadway musical Cats? A, Cats is about a group of thespian cats who have started a theater company and spend their evening practicing their musical numbers. They are waiting for their cat leader, Deuteronomy, to judge their performance and determine which cat has the most talent. Or is it B, Cats tells the story of a young immigrant cat Boris von Wiskerwitz, who is accidentally separated from his family in New York. He falls in with a group of ethnically diverse cats living in an alleyway, all trying to work together to make new lives for themselves in America. Or is it C? Cats is about a tribe of cats called the Jellicles, and the night they make what is known as the Jellicle Choice and decide which cat will ascend to the heavyside lair and come back to a new life. Oh, brother. <laughs> I have, you know what? This is this is so bad. But I, like, I've lived in New York for about seven years now. I've never gone to a Broadway show ever. Not one. 
Not one single Broadway. It's pathetic. I well, you've been busy. You have a good excuse. <laughs> yeah, this is going to suck. Uh, how about B? Um, B is not the right answer. B, I, I, B is the, the story of a young immigrant cat. I loosely based B on that movie, uh, An American Tale. Have you ever seen that? Oh. The cartoon one about nope. the mouse? <laughs> nope. Well, okay. Well, I'm glad I'm I'm giving all sorts of cultural references that mean nothing to you today. Yeah, yeah I'm not. <laughs> but that's okay. This is culture. this is literally the most meaningless culture. quiz yeah. of your life, so it's all good. Okay, which of the following is not a cat in Cats? A. Griddlebone. B. Rumple Tigger. Or C. Mungo Jerry. Jesus. A. Griddlebone is in fact a cat in Cats. <laughs> 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 Rumple Tigger B. Can you just cho- choose the next one randomly for me? Like just. <laughs> I could. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. No, you're really. It's this is perfect. Like this is exactly what I hope for. Like for you not to know any of the answers. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yep. All right. Okay, so see, there's actually a, a revival of Cats now playing on Broadway. So Andy, next time you're in New York, you could go see it. Which song? Yeah. Which song was cut and is no longer a part of the current show? Oh. Is it A. Growl Tiger's Last Stand, B. The Battle of the Peaks and the Policies Part One, or C. Gus the Theater Cat? B. <laughs> no, that's a real song. <laughs> or that's yeah, still that's still in it. <laughs> the Battle of the Peaks and Policies Part One and Part Two is still in it. They cut Growl Tiger's Last Stand, which is a song about a pirate cat who at some point has this like weird flashback about doing battle with Siamese cats. And this one, you know, I thought about you, especially they took it out because there's this like vaguely racist portion where the Siamese cats use these like generic Asian E accents. And finally people were like, can you just not do that? Cause it's kind of racist. So they took that one out. (laughs) I know. Right. So now you should be really excited to go see it next time you're in new york <laughs> or not because now you know everything you need to know <laughs> oh except for i can't remember anything you just told me so i'll be sh- i'll be sure see. to send you all the notes <laughs> yeah all right andy thank you so much for being my guest today on the morning after it was really cool to talk to you and yeah. any more pock pocks coming our way or are we good for now with the three cities we're actually opening a new spot here in Portland. It's I don't know if you recall, but when we first opened in, in uh, New York, we opened uh, Pock Pock Wing on the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we are actually opening a version of that in Portland right now in in a location right next to our commissary um, in the in a building that used to be a, uh, a Tasty Freeze years ago. So um, that's opening this week. That's actually why, you know, I'm... I'm hammering away trying to get that up and rolling okay so, cool uh, that, that's our newest edition <laughs> well congrats on that and thanks. next time i'm in portland i'll be sure to check that out if not for Great, now thanks. i'll just have to deal with being in the the portland of the east in brooklyn <laughs> there it is all yep. right thanks for being our guest thanks everyone for listening to the morning after see you same time same place sundays at three o'clock on heritageradionetwork.org <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.